Good morning. I'm glad to be here with you this morning to continue our uh, study of the history of Christianity in the world today. The Christianity since it has been established by the Lord Jesus Christ some 2,000 years ago. You know, we are not deists. You know what deism is? Deism is a belief that God created the world and then He just hands off. And basically sitting on the moon watching everything go on, not having any involvement at all in the affairs of men. On the other hand, we do not believe that God moves people around like chess pieces and makes all our decisions for us. But we believe that God has given us free will. And one of the things that we're going to learn today is we are going into the vineyard of by their fruits ye shall know them. We're going to see what happens when when Christianity becomes corrupted, when Christianity becomes perverted, when Christianity gets inoculated, so to speak, with the uh, affairs of men and gets tangled up and twisted in that. Now, last week we talked about persecuted Christianity from the period of time of the, about 70 A.D. to 312 A.D., We talked about how that the church during this period of time, you and I as Christians would have had much in common with these people. They would have felt very comfortable worshiping with us and we would have felt very comfortable worshiping with them. There would have been a tremendous amount in common. I say we would have felt comfortable. We would have felt comfortable except for the fact that they were persecuted terribly. They were persecuted. Christianity spread tremendously. The canon of Scripture was was commonly recognized throughout Christendom, throughout the world at the time. And there was the rise, if you remember, the rise of the bishop as being the one who had the authority over the elders in a congregation. A change in the government structure of the church as it was originally laid out in Scripture. And we're going to find that 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 small change produces tremendously drastic results in the history of Christianity throughout the world. Today, we're going to talk about the time period that we call imperial Christianity. The time from 312 to 590. Now, the reason we use 312 is because in 312 is when the Edict of Toleration was made by an emperor named Galerius. We're going to talk about that just a little bit. And we end with 590 because 590 is the arisal of the first guy who was really worldwide recognized as the Pope of the church. And so this period of time, before the Pope becomes head of the church... We have a period of time here we call imperial Christianity. And in this period of time, there's a drastic change in who runs the Christian church. And it's a change that's surprising. Let me ask you this. Who's the head of the church? I bet all of you immediately had an answer. Is it one of these guys? Y'all know who that is? It's Billy Graham and Joel Osteen. Are they head of the church? I hear people all the time say, well, I, I went down to Houston and I went to Joel Osteen's church. Is Joel Osteen the head of the church? No. Billy Graham, I mean, he had crusades all over the world. Thousands and thousands of people would come together to hear him preach. Is he head of the church? No, he's not head of the church. Not long ago, I was over in, in Europe and I was in England and I got to go to Westminster Abbey, the cathedral, you know who's the head of that church? The Queen of England is the head of the Church of England. Is she the head of the church? No. Well, maybe it's one of these two guys. On the right is Pope Francis, and on the left is ecumenical archbishop or something... Bartholomew of the Greek Orthodox Church. Are those guys the head of the church? You know, there are about a billion people on earth who recognize the guy on the right as head of the church. Are these guys head of the church? Nope. What about those guys? (laughs) Are those guys head of the church? 
Nope. Who's head of the church? Well, we know the answer to that. Can you imagine? Does that send a chill through your spine, by the way? Can you imagine the mess we'd be in if Barack Obama had been head of the church for the last eight years? Can you imagine that? A political leader as head of the church? Wouldn't that be a horrible thing? You know what? That's what happens during the period of imperial Christianity. Now what the Bible teaches us clearly is this. Jesus Christ is the head of the church. In Ephesians 1 it says, "...which He wrought in Christ when He raised Him from the dead and gave Him to be the head over all things to the church." Jesus Christ, after He was resurrected, gathered His disciples together right before He ascended. And He said this, "...all authority in heaven and earth is given unto Me." Jesus Christ is the head of the church. There's no man anywhere who is head of the church. But in this period of time we call imperial Christianity, what happens is the Roman culture and the Roman emperor has such influence in the church that virtually the Roman emperor becomes head of what was recognized around the world as the Christian church. You know, there were a bunch of Roman emperors. You've probably heard of Augustus and maybe a few others, but there were lots and lots of Roman emperors. And one of the things that was true of the Roman Empire is when a Roman emperor died, his son didn't just take over. It worked kind of like the mafia. When a guy dies, the guys that are under him all fight and whoever's the biggest, baddest, toughest guy or backed by the biggest, baddest, toughest guys wins. And he takes over and he rules. And so it wasn't necessarily a father passed to a son, passed to a grandson, passed to a great-grandson. That didn't hardly ever happen. But it was whoever was the most ruthless and mean and conniving and powerful is who took over and ruled. And as a result, you ended up with some crazy nuts You ended up with this guy on the right, his name is Commodus. He believed that he was Hercules. He walked around dressed like Hercules, carrying a club and talking to himself. This guy would have sick, injured, maimed people put out in the Colosseum and he would go in and slaughter them like a gladiator. Roman citizens. If you got injured and they caught you during his reign... He'd put you in there and He would kill you just for sport. He had statues of Himself put all over the area of Rome. The guy on the left, that guy, I can't even pronounce his name, Hegelegalegabus or something like that. (laughs) This guy was a transvestite that had a pet rock that he worshipped. I mean, you had some crazy nuts that ruled the Roman Empire. Some of them were terribly wicked and vicious. The last Roman emperor who had an official policy of persecuting Christianity was this guy. His name was Diocletian. And Diocletian tortured many, many thousands of Christians, of your brothers and sisters in the Lord. It was an official policy of the Roman Empire while he was ruler. Now, he had an underling, a guy named Galerius... And this fellow that was his, his underling in ruling was the guy who history tells us probably promoted most of the persecution of Christians during this period of time. You know, we hear about this stuff, and as I tell some of these stories, you know, about, about them doing these terrible things, I see the looks on your faces and you go, oh man, that's awful. We can't really fathom that, can we? I mean, really what that kind of persecution is like. But that shouldn't surprise you. Jesus Christ said this, If the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. Yet because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Jesus Christ said, the world's going to hate you. If you're a follower of me, the world is going to hate you because it hated me. And you're not like the world. We're going to see that more and more in our culture and in our generation, I believe. 
I believe that change is happening even as we speak in America. It's always been the case that true Christians were persecuted in some form. Paul told Timothy that a good soldier is going to be persecuted if they seek to live a godly life in Christ Jesus. That's just true. And we as Christians need to embrace the truth of what Jesus said. Now this guy, Galerius, became emperor after Diocletian died. Diocletian, the last persecuting emperor. Galerius comes on the scene. And Galerius, although he provoked a lot of the persecution of Christians, he finally just throws up his hands and goes, you know what? The worse we persecute these guys, the more of them there are. It's just a waste of our time to persecute. We've tried for centuries now to persecute them out of existence, and there's more than there ever were. In fact, by this time, or not long after this, they say there were about 30,000 Christians in Rome. I mean, they're everywhere now. Persecution isn't working to stamp out the church. It never has and it never will work to stamp out Christ's church. So he issues an edict of toleration. He says, you know what? Let's just leave them alone. Just leave them alone. We're going to tolerate them in our nation, in our empire. Now this was the beginning of something that's going to drastically change. You know, in America there's a big debate at times about church and state, right? There's a big debate about whether church and state should have anything to do with each other. And we've got some political candidates that say yes and some that say no. And the official policy of the United States is a separation of church and state. You know, it's always been that way in the Judeo-Christian history. Even back in the times of the Hebrew nation, the Israelites... They were a theocracy. In other words, God ruled them. But there was still a separation of religion and political power. The Levites led the religious part of Israel and the tribe of Judah led the political part of Judah. And there were, there were involvement of the two, but they were separate. There's always been a separation of church and state. But that's about to change. And unlike most of the things in history, when you study history, a lot of times things take take decades or centuries to change. The changes are slow and incremental and little by little by little. This is one of those things that happens dramatically. It's a story of one man and one battle and one night that dramatically changed the landscape of Christianity as the world knows it. And it's the story of this man on the right. On the left was a a Roman general named Maxentius. Let's see, on your left. Yeah, on your right is a Roman general named Constantine. When Galerius dies, these two guys come out as the top competitors for ruling the empire. And they have soldiers that follow them. And they're going to have a battle, and this battle is at a place called the Milvian Bridge just outside of Rome. And they gather at this bridge and they're going to have this battle. And Constantine has 40,000 soldiers. But if you were a betting man, you would bet on Maxentius. Because he had 170,000 soldiers. That's a big battle, isn't it? 40,000 against 170,000. Who would you bet on, Kent? 170,000, right? On the way to this battle, Constantine, the story he told the rest of his life was this. He saw a vision in the sky. And in the sky, that vision that he saw had a picture of a cross. It was a cross floating in the sky. And underneath the cross were these words, In hoc signo vincit, which is Latin. And what it means is this. In this sign you shall conquer. He took that to mean that the Christian God was going to give him victory in this battle. And he gathered his troops together and he rallied them around the idea that the Christian God was going to intervene on their behalf and that they would win this battle. And you know what happened? They won the battle. They won. And Constantine becomes emperor unified 
the Roman Empire, and he now is someone who has an allegiance, at least to some degree, to this Christian God. We understand from history that his mother was a Christian. His wife became a Christian. His children were raised as Christians. Constantine did some things that affect us even today. And Constantine did some things in the Roman Empire that were very, very good and some things that were not so good. Some of the good things that he did was this. He issued the Edict of Milan in 313. The Edict of Milan took the Edict of Toleration one step further. It said not only are we going to tolerate Christianity, but we're going to promote and protect Christianity in the Roman Empire. We're going to promote it because it's a good religion. We're going to protect it from all those who would seek to persecute it. Now, if you had been persecuted... And your belief system, us, we've been persecuted for hundreds of years. And we ourselves had been persecuted 15 years ago, put to death, a lot of us. And now an emperor has come on the scene and he has said, not only are we going to tolerate Christians, we're going to protect them. Would you think that was a good deal? Oh, buddy. (laughs) Dancing in the streets, right? Yes! Things are good now. Another thing he did, he was baptized. This man had some integrity of some kind. After he was baptized, he refused to ever wear royal purple again. He said, Jesus is the only one who should wear royal purple. He was buried in his baptismal robe. This man had a conviction. Another thing, he returned all the stolen property. All the property that had been stolen from the Christians over the recent persecutions, he decreed that it was all to be returned to them. And so, when Diocletian would go in and shut down a group of Christians and take all their money and put it in the public treasury, he returned all that money. He had some integrity in doing that. Another thing he did is he ended crucifixion in the gladiatorial games. He said, crucifixion is offensive to Christians. Our Savior was crucified. We're going to stop it. And they quit crucifying. And he ended the gladiatorial games. He said, they're barbaric and they're ungodly. We're not going to do that anymore. And he stopped it. And there have not been gladiatorial games in the Colosseum since then. Another thing he did is he gave tax breaks to churches. And he built church buildings. He did something that you are doing right now that is kind of an indirect result of His decision. And that is, He allowed the Christians to come out of the catacombs and to begin worshiping in public. He built church buildings for Christians. And He also made Sunday a holiday in the Roman Empire. People don't work on Sunday now. First time in history Sunday had been a holiday. Up to this point... On Sunday, if you, especially if you were slave, you had to work. You didn't, well, choose a job that doesn't make you work on Sunday. That wasn't a discussion to them. That was a, that's a, a very American thing. Up to this point, but he changed that. But he also did some things that had a very dark hammer to Christianity in the long run. One of the things that happened is he centralized absolute power in one man. You've heard the old adage, power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely. Now, not only was the most powerful political man in the world, but he was also the most powerful religious man in the world. He began to make decrees that affected not only state, but now church. And he did that because this, he realized that once you incorporate into the fabric of your culture religion as part of the political system, then everything that happens in religion affects politics. You know, there has been a big turmoil in the United States about homosexual marriage, right? Same-sex marriage. There are some religious groups 
that are accepting that. There are other religious groups that are rejecting that. And in some religious groups, you've got half of them want to accept it and half of them want to reject it. Right? Well, you know, the things that happen in a church don't really affect our political system. If we were to have a problem in this congregation and it splits, that's not going to affect who's, who's mayor of Denton, is it? That's not going to affect the county commissioners or the state elections because our politics are not combined with our religion. But when you get religion combined with politics, if there's a religious problem, that affects the whole nation. And so Constantine began to convene some meetings where they discussed issues that were problems in Christianity. And we'll talk about those here in just a minute. Another thing that he began to promote was the idea that the kingdom of God was Rome. Now, we know that Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. But he equated Rome now that... Christianity was becoming the official religion of Rome. He equated Rome with the kingdom of God. Another thing that happened is he claimed the messianic prophecies for the emperor. He would read the prophecies about the Messiah, the coming Messiah, and he would apply them to himself and the Roman emperor, which they didn't apply to that at all. The final thing I want to mention that he did that had dramatic impact as he began to change church government. You recall last time we talked about how the government of the church in the Bible, Jesus Christ said, you're to have elders and deacons and saints in each congregation. And that there wasn't all the congregations overruled by a centralized government that was overruled by a greater centralized government. That didn't exist. But what began to happen during the reign of Constantine as he took power in the church is that they began to mirror the Roman system of government in the church. You know, in the Roman system of government, they had guys like we do in America. There's a mayor over Denton, and then there's a, a governor over the state, and then there, you know, there are larger areas and people who have power over those areas. And that began to be the case in the Christian church as a result of what Constantine was doing. Another thing that he did is he changed the capital of the Roman Empire from Rome to a city called Byzantium, and he renamed Byzantium as Constantinople or Constantinople, named it after himself. And that became the capital, the eastern capital of the Roman Empire. Now the western capital remained Rome. This ultimately ends up in a large division in the year 1054 in the church. And we'll talk about that when we get to that point. But this has a dramatic impact on the Roman Empire. Now, let me show you what Jesus had said. Jesus said this, And He said to them, The kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, but not so among you. On the contrary, he who is greatest among you, let him be as the younger, and he who governs as he who serves. Leadership in God's church has always been servant leadership. People who led were not those who had great authority and made all the decisions and got to get their way about everything. That's not the way Christianity has ever worked. Jesus Christ Himself got on His knees and washed the feet of His disciples. Jesus said that I, the Son of Man, came not to serve, but or not to be served, but to serve. Jesus came to serve and He left us that example. And leadership in His church has always been that way. But it wasn't that way now. Let me show you how fast it changed. There was a guy who came along in the year 401, just a few years after Constantine, who becomes the ruler of uh, Rome, the emperor. And he said this, Not only is Christianity going to be the official religion of the empire, but you are going to be a Christian. And he got his soldiers and they went into these towns and they rounded up everyone with swords, rounded them up and led them, pushed them to the river and forced all the members of these communities to walk through the river. You know what he was doing? He was baptizing them and making them Christians. 
And now not only was it an officially accepted religion, but everyone was forced to be a Christian. In fact, paganism became illegal in the Roman Empire. Now this is just a few short years. Now can you imagine if we'd had a big election in Denton last week? And let's say last Thursday, Christianity became the official religion of Denton. And every person in the city of Denton was forced to be a member of the Anna Street Church of Christ. Now, we'd have to be meeting out in the park or somewhere, right? We'd, can you imagine Matt and Yancey going, Well, yeah, we got the biggest church in town now. Can you imagine all the corruption that would come into the church? Because you see, people's hearts weren't changed. It was just a change of the name that they wore. There was no conversion. It was coercion. And that didn't change people. It didn't make people Christians. All it did was bring open corruption into what was recognized as the Christian church. And when they began to change the structure of the church, all of a sudden, since everyone had to be a Christian, those who were leaders over everyone, there was a lot of money and power involved in leading now. And instead of it being a religion where the leaders were servants, it was a religion where the leaders got a lot of money and a lot of power. And so all of a sudden now, you have a different type of man looking to be a leader in this church. You have men who are looking to lead because there's money in it. You have men looking to lead because there's political power in it. You don't have men looking to lead because they want to be servants. And as you can imagine, that dramatically changes. Now you know as well as I do that Jesus Christ said, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom was of this world, my servants would fight. But His servants didn't fight. When they were persecuted, they didn't fight back. They didn't all run out and get concealed carry licenses and carry their guns with them so they could fight back. Because the kingdom was not of this world. The kingdom was a spiritual kingdom. But these people didn't understand that. And it began to be very corrupt publicly. Very, very dramatically Now, I will tell you this, something you need to know. There were always faithful Christians during this period of time. Always those who faithfully sought to serve God. But this big public version of the Christian church was a very different animal than what you and I... You would not have been comfortable as part of this church. One of the things that became a big debate and a big discussion among Christendom, all Christians around, was this question here. Who exactly was Jesus of Nazareth? You might say, what do you mean, who was Jesus? We talked about this at our brotherhood meeting a year and a half ago. Who was Jesus Christ? You know, that became a real big debate. You had people who came up with all kinds of different ideas about Jesus. There was a guy named Arius who really promoted an idea. He said Jesus was not divine. The Bible says He's like God, but He's not God. That's what Arius taught. It was called the Arian controversy. Do you believe Jesus was God? Amen? I do too. The Bible teaches that. But Arius taught Jesus was not God. And there was big controversy. There was big discussion about that. Did you know there are religions that call themselves Christian in the United States today that teach this Arian controversy, this Arius doctrine? You've probably talked to them. Their church is called the Jehovah's Witnesses. And this is what they teach. That Jesus is not God. He was a created being, just like the devil and everyone else. There's a big controversy. You had a lot of religious leaders lining up on one side and a lot of religious leaders lining up on the other side. They had a big conference called Everyone Together. And they discussed this in Nicaea in 325 A.D. And Arius was condemned as a heretic. 
Rightfully so, because what he was teaching was not true. Then there came along a guy by the name of Apollinarius. And Apollinarius said, no, Jesus was God, but He wasn't a man. He wasn't human. Do you believe Jesus was human? Was He a man? Yes, He was. In fact, the Apostle John talks about that, and he said there are deceivers that have gone into this world that say Jesus Christ did not come in the flesh. He did come in the flesh, though. This was Gnosticism. And it's your mystical religions. They had a big conference and they discussed this. People lined up on both sides. And Apollinarian was condemned as a heretic. Well, there was another guy came along, Nestorius. And Nestorius said, well, yes, Jesus was human and Jesus was divine, but there was one body and there were two spirits that lived in that body. And there was the human man Jesus who lived in that body. But then, at his baptism, the Holy Spirit came down and dwelt in him. So there were two different beings in that one body. One of them was God and one of them was man. And they didn't mix, they didn't intermingle, they were separate beings in that one body. And people began to line up on one side and on the other side. And they had a big conference and they discussed it all. And they came out with the conclusion that Nestorius was a heretic. And then there was a guy named Eutychus. And Eutychus, not the guy who fell out the window in Acts chapter 20, but a different Eutychus many years later. And he said this, Jesus was human and divine, but the human was absorbed into the divine. So... His teaching was this. Jesus was born as a normal man. He was a human. Lived His life up until the time He was baptized. Then the Holy Spirit came and dwelt in Him. And the Holy Spirit was so powerful that it absorbed the human part of Him. And He was no longer a man, but now He was God. So He started as a man, but He became a God. Or He became God. And they had a big conference about that and discussed that. You might say, whoo! <laughs> I can't imagine having all these debates and all these arguments. Does it even matter? Does it make any difference at all? You know, the story is told about a woman back many years ago who was a very wealthy woman here in the United States. And her husband was a very wealthy businessman. And she went to Europe... On a vacation, she took a ship and went over to Europe. And she got to Europe, and when she was in Europe, she found a diamond. Now, this is the Hope Diamond. It's worth millions of dollars. But she found a diamond back then that was worth, or the asking price was $75,000. That was a lot of money back then. You might go, that's a lot of money today. (laughs) It was a whole bunch of money back then. And she sent a wire because they didn't have telephones back then, to her husband. And she said, I found this diamond and I want to buy this diamond. What do you think, honey? And he sent her a telegram back that said, no, price too high. The problem is, the telegram company made a mistake and they left the comma out. And that's what she got. No price too high. And she bought the diamond, and when she got back to the United States, her husband sued the telegram company and won. Because something as little as a comma really did matter. (laughs) It made a big difference in the ultimate reality. I believe it matters that we understand Jesus, don't you? I believe it matters. And sometimes, some of these things that we go, oh man, why did I even bother talking about? Sometimes some of those things do matter. We need to know and understand Jesus as much as is possible. Now what happens at this point in Christianity, as you can imagine, if we had, if they made that law in Denton and everyone came into the church, it would not I mean, it would not even resemble what we have here today, would it? And it wouldn't surprise me that given six months, this group of people right here 
end up off somewhere (laughs) meeting together and worshiping the Lord the way the Bible teaches us to. And what you had is an arisal of hermits and monks and monasteries because godly people, godly Christian people, they didn't want to be a part of that. They didn't want to be a part of the immorality. They didn't want to be a part of the corruption that was becoming known as Christianity. Now, I want to tell you this right here. The reason you've got this, the reason we have these, is because of these godly, holy people who hold themselves up away from the public immorality that was recognized now as Christianity. And they honored and they served God and they respected His Word. And they carefully, painstakingly copied page after page after page by hand the Word of God. And they made copy after copy after copy after copy. They would live their lives copying the Word of God so it could be given to other people, so the message could be carried on. And even though at times there were people who tried to stamp out the Word of God, there were these faithful, godly men and women who hold themselves up away from the corruption of the world and sought to serve God. Now, I'm not saying everything they all did was right. There were a lot of craziness that went on, even in, in the monasteries. A lot of them would uh, take very drastic vows of silence and things like that 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 aren't biblical and aren't what the Bible teach. But what we do find is these were people who, as opposed to the public persona of Christianity, were seeking, at least in a way, to serve God. One of the most famous was a guy by the name of Jerome. Jerome was a monk He was someone who pulled himself away from everyone else and he studied the Bible. He studied the Word of God. He learned Hebrew and he learned Greek. And he wrote a translation of the Bible in the common language of the day. By the way, they didn't all speak American English back then. They spoke Latin. And his translation of the Bible, you can still get a copy of it today. It's called the Latin Vulgate. And he did that in an effort to get God's Word out to the people where average, common, ordinary people could read and understand the Word of God. Do you think that's a good thing? I think it's a good thing. Wouldn't it be awful if there were no Bibles in English and you didn't know any other language? Wouldn't that be bad? I think it would be a good thing. Ultimately, this good thing was used for a very bad purpose for about a thousand years. But at the time, it was a good thing. Another one that you've heard of, Benedict. You may have heard of Benedictine monks. There are even Benedictine monks today. Benedict was a very orderly, organized man, and he had a very specific function of the way things... Very disciplined. And there are orders of Benedictine monks today. Most of the Bibles that we have, the ancient manuscripts, were written, handwritten by Benedictine monks. And the church history, although we won't spend much time on him, it would be like talking about uh, the Dallas Cowboys and never mentioning Roger Staubach if we didn't mention this guy. His name was Augustine. Augustine began as a very corrupt, immoral young man. He fathered a child out of wedlock. He was a wild, partying young man. He did not serve any God. And then he went and heard a man preach. And he was converted. He was converted to Christianity. And he was very influential. He was a very intelligent man and he wrote. He wrote a book called The City of God, which was very influential for centuries. He wrote another book called The Confessions of St. Augustine. Fascinating, interesting reading. But he had an idea that the kingdom of God was going to be here on this earth and that we could have a culture and a society that 
totally pushed out ungodliness, and we could all be a kingdom of godly people here together on this earth. He developed the doctrines that you and I today know as Calvinism, about predestination and irresistible grace. Those came from from Augustine. He was a very influential player. What you had during this period of time that we're talking about is you had the church, but the church was a bigamous church. It was a church that was married both to Christ and to Rome. It was a church that had two husbands, so to speak. And there were godly, honest people in this church who sought to serve and follow Jesus Christ. And then there was the mass who sought to serve and follow Rome and the leader of the Roman Empire. In the year 381, this guy, a guy named Damasus, became the bishop of Rome. Now you remember bishops had gained a lot of authority and a lot of power. Each, each area had a bishop. And this bishop had authority over all the elders and all the churches in his area. And there was a bishop in Rome named Damasus. And he is the very first one to ever make this argument in history. And he said this, The Holy Roman Church takes precedence over all other churches because Jesus said so. Now there was competition between bishops in different places because remember, these guys are looking for position and money. There's very great power in being a bishop over an area. He said, Jesus said so. And then he quoted Matthew chapter 16 where Jesus told Peter, upon this rock I will build my church. And he's the very first one to ever make the argument that Peter was the first pope. He made the argument that Peter was the rock that this was built upon. This fellow... The bishop of Rome, this rocks on for a while. And the Roman Empire became weak, especially in the West. In the East, the Roman Empire stayed pretty strong in Constantinople, their new capital. But in Rome, it got weak. And the most powerful man politically in Rome became the bishop of the church, the leader of the church in Rome. And then there were a group of barbarians They began to sweep through and destroy the Western Roman, Roman Empire a guy by the name of Attila the Hun. And Attila's armies came in and they began to go into Italy. And they set their sights on Rome. And they were going to go down and sack Rome. And they would go in and they would just burn and destroy everything in their path. At the time, the bishop of the Roman church was a guy named Leo. And Leo, one night, when Attila the Hun was in his camp outside of town, Leo got his translator and he got up by himself with this translator in the middle of the night and he went out to the camp where Attila the Hun was. And he went and he met face to face with Attila the Hun and he said to Attila, he said, you will not attack us because we are the city of God. Told Attila the Hun that to the face. Attila was so impressed with the courage of this guy that he said, okay. (laughs) And they didn't attack Rome. Isn't that interesting? Guess who was the most popular guy (laughs) in Rome now? Guess who had tremendous political capital in Rome? It was this guy named Leo. And this guy began to capitalize on that power and spread that throughout the Roman world. There are six things wrong with what has developed here with this man being the head of the Roman church in Rome. They began to call him the father of the church or in the Italian, Papa, which is translated for us, Pope. And they began to recognize him as that. And it's a few years yet before it's officially claimed and recognized throughout the world by anyone. It's a guy named Gregory the Great who does that. But I want to share with you very briefly six things that are wrong with this. Number one, only Jesus Christ is the head of the church. No man can ever be the head 
of the church of God. Jesus said, All authority in heaven and earth is given unto me. And He never gave that authority to any man on earth. Another thing that's wrong... Woo! Is I almost fell off the stage. <laughs> that would be wrong. It violates the greatest shall be least principle. When you take one man and you give them authority over the church of God on earth, you give them the power of God in a human, it violates that principle. And we know Jesus said, For he who is least among you will be great. That was a constant theme of the teaching of Jesus. It was never the theme to celebrate a man as the leader of his people. Another thing wrong is it conflicts with New Testament church government. When you read the Bible, you don't read anything similar to the Pope in the Bible. It's just not there. What you read instead is this, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi, with the bishops and deacons. Bishop is the same word that's used as shepherd and elder and pastor. They all refer to the same thing. And those were the men in the local congregations who led spiritually that congregation of people. You had deacons. The word deacon means servant. Men who were dedicated and recognized as servants of the church in that area. And then you had saints. And saints was not Christian's hall of fame. Saints was what any ordinary Norman, normal Christian was. is someone who was sanctified. Someone who was set apart. Another thing that's wrong with that is that Peter was an elder. He was not a pope. From his own lips we read this. The elders are among you I exhort. I who am a fellow elder. The apostle Peter never claimed to be a pope. He never claimed to be the father of the church. He claimed to be an elder like the other elders in the church. The fifth thing that was wrong is that no man is ever called the Petra of the church. You might say, what's the Petra of the church? In Greek, the word rock is Petra. And the word Petra means a huge boulder or a large rocky outcropping like a big rock cliff. Have you seen the the Rocky Mountains? That's what it's talking about. Huge, massive rocks. That's what the word Petra means. This passage that was used by Damasus in Matthew chapter 16, Jesus says this, And I say unto you that you are Petros, or Peter, And upon this Petra, I will build my church. Petros is a Greek word that has the same root as Petra, but it's different. What he said to Peter literally was this, I say to you that you are a tiny little pebble, and on this huge boulder, I'm going to build my church. What was that huge boulder that the church is built on? Well, what had Peter just said? It was the confession that Peter made that he is the Christ, the Son of the living God. And there's nothing of apostolic succession found in the New Testament. There's never any indication in the New Testament that one man followed another who followed another who followed another. In fact, what we read in Scriptures, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Hear Him. No other foundation can anyone lay than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Jesus is the foundation. And the church was built that way. That brings us to 590 and the conclusion of this lesson. You had a guy named Gregory, Gregory the Great. You may have heard of Gregorian chanting. If you've ever heard, think of monks and and, uh, people in monasteries and all the... kind of chanting that they do. Gregory was the guy... Don't laugh at that. That was the best I could do on the spur of the moment. Okay. Gregory was the guy... He was really into music and he developed Gregorian chanting. And there's still Gregorian chanting around today. But Gregory is the first guy... They called him Gregory the Great. And he's the first guy who claimed to be and was recognized among the visible church and all the bishops in other places as the Papa of all the churches. 
And I wish we had time to get into why that happened here in Rome. We really don't have time for that. It's a fascinating story. Now, all of these things we've talked about, was this really the church? I mean, the stuff we've talked about. Having these these political leaders who were calling all these conferences. Was that stuff really the church? Was that really Christianity? You know, Christianity has always existed. Jesus said His kingdom was like a tree that was going to grow and fill the whole earth. But Christians have always been persecuted. Genuine, true Christians. True Christians have never been the one who had the political muscle and the political clout. The Apostle Paul told the church in Thessalonica, they were all concerned. They said, oh, the Lord's coming back any minute. We ought to quit our jobs. And you know, every once in a while someone comes along and everybody sells their houses and quits their jobs. And and Paul, when this was going on in Thessalonica, he said, guys, guys, listen. Jesus is going to come back, but there's going to be a falling away first. And our next lesson is going to take us into what in history is known as the Dark Ages. And the Roman Empire crumbles, but it is replaced with something that is far more powerful and far more insidious, and it lasts a thousand years. And it's known as the Holy Roman Empire. And it's a fascinating study to see how that affected God's people and God's church throughout the history of the ages. I hope you've been encouraged and learned a little bit. I hope, my hope is that you've been motivated that when you face some kind of struggle or persecution or trouble, that you don't quit. That you say, you know what, even in the face of all of that, God's people stood. And I hope if you're not one of God's people, you're warned. You're warned that you need to be. Because God is real and God is on His throne. And no matter how things look to us, His kingdom is not of this world. That's why His servants don't fight. We fight a battle, but our war is not a physical war with weapons here on this earth. But it's a spiritual war. And our weapons are mighty in this spiritual war. But we're fighting against spiritual wickedness. Not against physical wickedness in this world. I hope you've been encouraged and motivated. If there's something spiritually we can do to assist you, we do offer an invitation if you will make that need known while we stand and sing.